All right, as our custom, why don't we stand and read the Word of God? And we'll do Revelation 1, 1 to 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Please be seated. Well, as you know, last week we gathered at Fish Creek Park to celebrate the conclusion of Revelation. And if you were there, it was a great time. I know I was deeply encouraged by what happened and our, our time together as three churches. And our intention for the, the gathering was to have obviously a celebratory time as, as ch- churches and remembering and getting a picture of what heaven would be like in the future with us gathered from different ethnic backgrounds and different uh, um, you know, backgrounds in terms of our families of origin and stuff, and just seeing how the community of believers would be as one unit. But our attention too as pastors was that um, it would be the last sermon in Revelation. But as I began thinking about everything we've learned so far and covered over the last nine months, I wasn't totally settled in my spirit just to leave it with last week's service. As we said and recognized so many times, and even Jeff prayed this in his prayer, that Revelation's a difficult book. It's hard to understand, it's controversial, it's widely debated. So I thought, why not do one more sermon to summarize the main themes of what we've learned? Discover the Coles Notes version, if you will, of, of what Revelation's about. And this is important for me to do because I was thinking if someone were to take me for coffee and say, you tell me what the book's about, this would be kind of the synopsis that I would give someone to help them through. So what is it about? Well, I've recognized this many times, that it's widely debated, and many strong, uh, faithful Christians have certain beliefs about what it is. But the predominant view in North America is definitely it's a prophecy concerning a futuristic timeline of the events that are going to happen before Christ's return. That's the predominant view, and it's going to be a time of unparalleled evil, a rise of particular antichrist type figures ending with the return of jesus with three successive judgment scenes the bowl like the seals the bowls and the trumpets or seals trumpets and bowls and then the establishment of god's kingdom now while it is true that revelation does speak to the future jesus hasn't returned yet we're still waiting for his kingdom to come in the fullness of what he promised I have suggested to you all along, that's not the predominant reason Revelation was written. I believe, through the study of his word, that Revelation is a discipleship manual for believers throughout the entire church age. Every generation of believers, Revelation has something to say. And it's not predominantly a crystal ball to the future, but a radical call. Not a crystal ball but a radical call, a call to faithful witness, a call to radical discipleship. Now, I've spent in every sermon I've done, pretty much, explaining the reasons for why, every time we hit a new sermon, why it's to be taken as a radical call and not so much a futuristic timeline. 
But let me just give you a reminder of the main reason that we've come to this conclusion, or at least I have. The first and biggest thing is this. The return of Jesus is mentioned four times in Scripture, in the Scripture. Four times Jesus comes back in his second coming. We see him coming back in Revelation 6.12. We see him coming back in Revelation 11.17. We see his return in 14.14. And we see his return in Revelation 19, verse 19.11-16. Interwoven between his returns are the seven judgment scenes, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. If, if this was a linear timeline, we, we, we know from the linear perspective that all the bulls, all the, all the judgment scenes occur sequentially, then the return of Jesus. But what we have in here are the seals preceding his first coming. And then we have his coming at the end of the trumpets. And then we have this interlude and we have him again at the end of the, the, the bulls. And so he's coming back in between judgment scenes. So to look at it literally is to have like, to make sort of gymnastics out of the text. And so it gets very difficult. And the clincher for me was Revelation 6 in comparison to Matthew 24. In Revelation 6, this is the sixth seal, the sixth judgment scene. This is what it says. I looked and the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. In verse 17 at the end, he calls this the great day of the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus, when the disciples ask him, when's the sign of the end of your coming? Jesus in Matthew 24, 29 said this, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. And in verse 30, he says, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. John is a disciple of Jesus. He's writing this in AD 90, 60 years after Jesus has taught him this on the Mount of Olives. And he's describing in the sixth seal, the second coming of Jesus, no doubt. There's no question as to what he's describing there. Why is this important? Because the mark of the beast that is so popularized in our culture, that's so, so infamous of a text, occurs in chapter 13. Eight chapters later, people are getting the mark of the beast after, the day of, after Jesus has come. And we know this from Scripture that uh, people who hold to the literal timeline understand the mark of the beast is something people receive before his returning if they believe it to be literal. So again, we have this, this sort of inconsistency with using revelation in a linear fashion. So Andrew Sash, one of, a pastor I've listened to um, off and on throughout the years, said this, this isn't history as John has witnessed it. This is vision sequences as John glimpses it. You notice all through Revelation, I saw, I saw, I saw. It's, it happens just multiple times throughout the entire text. So he's seeing a vision and he writes it down. Then God gives him another vision, he writes it down. He's writing down the vision sequences in which the Lord reveals to him, not the timeline of absolute events in order. And this is really, really important. So then, what is it about? If it's a discipleship manual, what are we to learn? What is John actually trying to convey to us? 
I would say first and foremost, without a doubt, one of the central themes of Revelation is a call for the perseverance of God's people in a world that sets up itself in opposition to him. A perseverance of God's people. The idea, the word perseverance or overcome or this idea of faithfulness occurs no less than 20 times in Revelation. No less than 20 times is the word persevere, overcome, or this idea of faithfulness used. Let me give you an example, read even in the opening chapter. In 1 verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos. He's recognizing as someone who's been persecuted for Christ's sake, who's been isolated from people on this island, is saying, I'm persevering in the Lord. Consider in chapter 2, verse 7, when he speaks to the Ephesian church, he says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Ephesus has failed in some areas in the church to overcome. Some they have and some they haven't. And he's saying, I'm, war- I'm writing this to you so that you will overcome. I want you to inherit this promise that I have for you for the future. Perseverance is a, is, a, is a major theme in Revelation. And as we've learned, no kidding. No kidding. Remember the context of Rome. Life in Rome as a first century Christian was often very difficult. It was easy to some degree if you complied with the policies of Rome, but it was very difficult if you didn't, and there was often harsh punishments given for those who didn't. The problem, of course, was that the, if you complied, the, the, the morals and ethics of Rome stood in co- stark contrast to the morals and ethics of the Lord. And so daily decisions had to be made as a follower of Jesus as to what you were going to do when it came to obeying God's commands or following suit with Rome. And remember, as I just read, five out of the seven churches had compromised. Five out of the seven churches had compromised. And so he had to warn them. Ephesus, for example, in chapter 2 and verse 4, compromised in the area of love. Pergamum, in the area of, um, in chapter 2.14, compromised in embracing false teaching, which allowed for the practices of sexual morality and temple worship once again in their services or in their Christian conduct. Laodicea, in chapter 3 and verse 15, had compromised in that they put all their security and hope and wealth and not in the Lord. They had become rich, and yet Jesus says, you're impoverished spiritually. So John's message is really, we need to overcome because there is no room for compromise in being follower of Jesus. He died for us, and so we are to live for him. Now, this is an important message for us because as our nation becomes more secularized and continues to push Christianity aside, we are going to be called even more to persevere and overcome. But an important truth emerges from this text then in terms of what it means to live in this world as a follower of Jesus, in terms of what quality of life will look like or safety or security. Being a Christian is not guaranteed to be a Disneyland ticket ride to heaven. While it's true God uh, can and has stepped in to alleviate trials and hardships in in believers' lives, he does allow us to bump shoulders with this evil society. 
And John's message is consistent with Jesus as, as he said under his teaching six years prior. John, and Jesus said this in John 16, 33. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. This is important because I know um, some people, even within our Christian denomination, um, I've met a, one in particular recently in the last couple of years who's actually walked away from God and, and left the ministry completely as a pastor. And when we asked him about it, he was disillusioned with God because he expected God to do so all sorts of things for him in this world that God never promised in the Bible. But he got disillusioned because he thought the Lord's died to give me a particular quality of life and it's not happening. And so he gets disillusioned. He walks away from the Lord. And uh, those of you who know Dan went for coffee with him and said, but, but buddy, like this is not what the Lord promised. And so again, this is why the call to perseverance and overcoming and faithfulness is such an important message for us today. The revelation also seeks to answer the question as to the true source behind the hostility. We're called to recognize the primary source of hostility. Again, throughout the letter, it's obvious that Rome is the number one nemesis in the first century of these Christians. And he actually, and a small sect of Jews uh, as part of that Roman Empire. But we see things like this Jewish synagogue persecuting the believers. We see false teachers uh, in, in the midst of the churches. We see kings and people of great stature, the rich and the poor, all contributing to the, the hostility the Christians are facing. So it's earthly enemies, and John makes this very clear. Now, while this is true, woven throughout the revelation is this idea that the ultimate enemy exists in a spiritual dimension that we can't see and comprehend, and that's the devil. Right in chapter 2 and verse 9, in describing this stuff going on in Smyrna, he says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, that you, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In 2.13, he says, and to the church in Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny me. Yes, the persecutors are earthly people, but he says behind all the earthly people is a spiritual dimension that you can't see and comprehend in which Satan rules. So again, this is important as we look to how we view our world, our world. You remember, especially in chapter 12 through 14, how he did a whole section on the true source of hostility. That's the famous text, right, about the, the woman is going to, about to give birth and the dragon is standing at the bedside to overcome the woman and overcome her child. But then later on, he says, but he, he still ruled the nations and he rose and was resurrected. So even though the Satan was out to get the Messiah, and got, um, he didn't. In fact, Christ's death didn't prove to be his defeat, but his victory over the devil. So what does the devil do? Well, he goes after God's people. If he's already defeated foe by the cross, what's left to do? He can only go after those that God loves and belong to him. And again, this is really important, and this is a message that John wants us to know. 
He's really saying this, if you choose to follow Jesus Christ, you automatically engage in holy war. If you choose to be a follower of Jesus, you've automatically enrolled yourself to be a soldier in holy war. Now, this is important because it really helps us in terms of our focus. I know, as, I know for you, when, when you see things that are anti-God or you get sort of, you suffer for God's name, there's a lot of anger and frustration that comes out of that. And so you want to focus on that individual. And God will hold those people accountable, don't get me wrong. But what John is saying to us, listen, behind the source of their animosity and their dysfunction is a spiritual realm in which they've, that they've sort of bought into and they've embraced. And that's why it's really important for, the, for us in terms of the power of prayer. Prayer is the only thing that really does battle in that spiritual realm. It does battle in the spiritual realm. And so we seek to change the world, not through policy, but through the change of heart. Change the heart, you change the behavior of a person. And so we're to pray for our enemies. The next message of Revelation is a call to embrace Jesus' pathway to victory. The normal pathway to victory when you're fighting is to take up arms, isn't it? The normal pathway to victory in this world is to fight for your, your rights and to fight for your cause. It can be through like verbal clashes. It can be through uh, a physical battle, like whatever. Even at a, at a nation level, it can be like military conquest, whatever. It's always through taking up of arms. What does John say? The way to defeat evil in this world, in the spiritual realm with the devil, and the human realm against God's enemies, is not by taking up arms and for fighting to protect yourself, but by laying them down. By laying them down. There's an incredible sequence of events in, in Revelation. In Revelation 6, 9, you see this idea of laying your arms down. You see it in 7.14, you see it in 12.11, you see it in 20 verse 4. You see it in these places, and I'll read you Revelation 6.9 because it's powerful. He says there, when he opened up the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls who had been, behead, been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Then in 12.11, he says, they, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and did not love their lives so much as strength from death. Look at how they're fighting. Look at how they're fighting against the Roman Empire. They're fighting by being faithful to the word of God and to being and the testimony of their lives. They're testifying about Jesus and they're even willing to give up their life in the midst of it. You talk about a polar opposite in terms of how to live out the Christian or how to live out the life in this world where it's to take up arms and John is saying the pathway to victory is to lay them down. John Metzger in his commentary said this. John looked to see power and force by which the enemies of his faith would be destroyed. And he sees sacrificial love and meek obedience to God as the way to win victory. We're to pattern ourselves after the Lord. Pattern ourselves after the Lord. It's exactly what he did in going to the cross. The big part of that church, in order to do this, I'm speaking to myself, 
in this, we have to be willing to leave justice in the hands of God. If you're going to live this life, you and I are going to leave hands in the justice of God. This is a really powerful scene in chapter 6 and verse 9, isn't it? There, the, the scene in the this, in this seal, in this fifth seal, is that people have been slain for their faith and been faithful to God, and they're crying out, Lord, when are we going to get justice? The Lord saw, knows this. He's the one who gave the vision to John to write this down. And the answer is soon, but not yet. <laughs> soon, but not yet. And then the next sixth seal is the second coming of Jesus to assure them that victory will come in the Lord's timing. It's powerful. I couldn't help be reminded of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19 through 23. He's speaking to a, Peter speaking to a church in Asia Minor, um, modern day Turkey, that is suffering. And listen to the words he says. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, not your own will, but conscious of his will for your life, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you're beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He's your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned, nor, he, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he had suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. This is the message and the radical call of Revelation. The fourth theme, which is really important though, is the call to the hope of eternal rewards. God will not, not give you something out of the fact that you're willing to lay your life down on, for him on his behalf. <laughs> eternal rewards are in, are in abundance in Revelation. This is why I think, again, the theme of his second coming occurs four times. It's just to remind the, 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 the people in, in, in Rome, the first century Christians, hey, God wins. And let me tell you another thing about God winning and what this means for you. And so Gordon Fee in his commentary was right when he said this, a glorious future awaits those who are his. A glorious future awaits those who are his. And so it's described in different ways throughout the entire letter. In the message to the seven churches, every time he ends the personal address to them, he, get, he reminds them of a, a reward they will receive if they overcome. So, for example, uh, using Smyrna, he says, I will give you a crown of life, like a victor's crown, like you were an Olympic athlete. In Pergamum, he says, I will give you hidden manna and a new name. Manna, of course, being the food that God prepared for, uh, used to sustain them in the wilderness in Israel's day and a new name, this idea of identification. Later in chapter 21 and 22, as we preached last week at, at um, Fish Creek Park, we saw this idea of a new city being a, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Holy of Holies meant unmitigated presence of the Lord in your midst. That's where you would find God. That's where you could commune with him. In chapter 22, we see the Garden of Eden restored. Again, back to this idea of paradise. And so John's pointing to spiritual realities in terms of rewards. First, there's this eternity in the presence of the Lord. 
this anticipation that he will dwell amongst his people and they shall be his. And the second thing we learn in these, in these scenes is that there's a place of no mores, a place of no mores. There'll be no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more pain. Basically a reversal of the things that went wrong in the fall. Suffering eliminated, enemies and sin dealt with. And finally, in terms of the message of Revelation, it's a call to worship Jesus. It's a call to worship him. If we've gone through Revelation and you've not wanted to know the Lord more or appreciate him more or give him praise more, I've probably failed you as a pastor. (laughs) Revelation is all about Jesus Christ. The first three words of the opening letter are as follows. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants. It's a book about Jesus Christ. It's a book about him. There's worship scenes all through the letter. Chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 15, chapter 19, chapter 22. And we're to worship him as different, um, for different things that he has done and who he is. So, for example, in chapter 4, verse 10, we are to worship him as creator, as the source of life. Listen to this. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they exist and they were created. We are to worship the Lord as creator. We're to worship him as the redeemer, as the one who saved us. In chapter 5 and verse 8, listen to this scene. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each of them holding a harp and golden bowls of incense. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe. We are to worship Jesus Christ for his purchasing of us, his death on the cross for our sins so that we could be reconciled to him by faith. We are also to to pour out our praise for him being a righteous judge and actually dealing with sin appropriately. In chapter 15 and 3, verse 3, listen to this. They sang the new song, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, The Almighty, righteous and true, are your ways, King of the nations. This occurs after, just before the bold judgments are about to be poured out. And it's saying, worthy are you because you're just. Right are your ways. And then at the conclusion of the letter, in chapter 22 and verse 8, this is what's said. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, When I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, the prophets of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. You go down later, and then it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, beginning and the end. That's who you're to worship. Who receives that title in this book? Jesus Christ in chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus Christ receives the title of Alpha and Omega in chapter 2, verse 8. I am the first and the last. 
I'm going to conclude with a paragraph I wrote um, for one of the assignments I had to do for my professor at Regent College. And I wrote this, boy, a year and a half ago, I had to write this paper before we even started preaching Revelation. And as I looked through it, I thought, you know what? I haven't changed my tune in terms of the, the, the meaning of what this actually says. I actually believe this captures now the same heart as I had back then. So I'll finish with this conclusion and just uh, let the words sink in. On a personal note, my study of Revelation has made an amazing impact on my spiritual growth. Not only has it led me to make a major theological shift in terms of how I have come to understand the letter, it has brought me a surprising amount of peace and comfort in the midst of an unsettled world. The peace came when I realized that the message of Revelation was not some kind of secret map through which I was to navigate in hopes of determining the final events before the Lord's return, but a message intended for the church, church universally. The comfort has been in knowing that I am part of a larger narrative in God's plan of redemption, and that I am one of many, past and present, living out the realities of what it means to follow our crucified and risen Lord. I just pray that the study of Revelation has done the same for you as it's done for me. Okay, well, why don't we uh, close in prayer? Lord, we give you thanks for this wonderful letter. It is, uh, it's been um, quite the journey and intimidating at times and um, just, yeah, like baffling at times, but at the same time, just a tremendous blessing and privilege to, to wade through it. And we thank you, Lord, that um, all scriptures inspired for teaching and profitable for rebuke and correction and, and for encouraging us. And so here we have a letter, Lord, that falls perfectly in suit with the rest of the New Testament teachings. And so we're grateful that this, this book can teach us the same way any other book can. And the truths that you intended for this book can be lived out in our lives today. And no different than any other book like Corinthians or Thessalonians or whatever. So we, we want to just, again, praise you and thank you for it. And thank you for giving John those incredible visions so that we could learn and glean from what he saw. I pray, Lord, as we go into the future now, that when we come back to this letter, that we, we see it with different eyes and won't be discouraged, won't be afraid to look at your word with new lenses and to be excited about what you've said 2,000 years ago to your church. We also ask for your guidance going into the future and that you would prepare us for the next uh, series of sermons that you have for us. And we look forward to diving into that in the future as well. In Christ's name, amen.